Good morning. Great to see you this morning. Thanks for uh, not being afraid of getting wet. You know, there's a bunch of people that today are going to park their cars at a huge distance from a place called the French Quarter and walk in the rain. And you just had to come here and park half a block at most and walk in. So congratulations on doing really hard things in life. You'll open your Bible up this morning to Exodus chapter 1. We are beginning a long-awaited study in the book of Exodus. I'm very excited for the opportunity for us to spend some time in the Old Testament, for us to better understand what God has given to us in the passages we find in the Old Testament that some, sometimes aren't as clear to us as to why are these things there, uh, but they are critically important to us. And there's some things in this book that as we move through it, it's going to communicate some very needed elements of how you and I think in an age that is rapidly unbolting itself from anything that has authority. Right? One of the reasons why there's a class available to you in the School of the Word uh, about faith in a world without God is because this world is jettisoning any sense of authority that tells us how to think, what to believe, what to do next. Well, you know, Exodus, if it's famous for a couple of things, it's famous for the miraculous rescue, and it's famous for the Ten Commandments, right? You may not know much else that's in the book of Exodus, but you will over the coming months. Uh, but apparently we needed to be told by the God of the universe how to live. Apparently, that was the case. <clears throat> now, you may not recognize that when you watch the news and you watch debates about laws and, and how our land is thinking through what to do next. But apparently, when God created us, we needed to be led by him. And so Exodus puts us in the crosshairs of that. So there's a lot that I love about this book, and as we look at it, uh, we'll benefit much from its insights. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time this morning. We'll pick up some bits and pieces about the background and writing and, and origins and language elements and some of that. We'll just grab some of that along the way. I just want to jump right into the storyline. But I, I do want to set it in its context, right? Exodus is one of five books in the scriptures known as the Pentateuch. So it is a, it is a piece of a five-volume set. And so if, you know, if you're a movie person and you know there's a trilogy out there, there's there's an installment, first and second. Well, there's something that came before Exodus, and there's some stuff coming after it. So Exodus fits into a bigger picture. It's written uh, by Moses. The events that take place in Exodus are going to be all the way back, 1875 B.C., running up to about 1445 B.C. And then Moses is going to write the story of Exodus somewhere before 1406 B.C., because that's about when he dies. So that's kind of the quick background on where Exodus is coming from. But let me give you Exodus again. We did this last week. Exodus in a sentence. Exodus tells the story of God's miraculous rescue of his people out of bitter enslavement in Egypt and is bringing them into relationship with himself. And I don't like the way I phrase that, although I, th I think it's helpful on one hand. The people who lived in, in Egypt who get rescued from God, they, they are brought into a functioning real relationship with the living God. And God actually goes as far as to introduce himself to them 
in Exodus chapter 20. So it is a meeting of sorts, but it is not the establishing of a relationship because the relationship's already been established. So that's what I don't like about that phrase. It's not as though God is saying, hey, I'm going to create a relationship with these people. No, God already has a relationship with them. But what I love about what's happening in Exodus is it puts us in the place of how many guys know you have a relationship with God, but sometimes you get to a place in your life where you almost got to get reintroduced to God. He's become so foreign. You've become so busy, so distracted. You know, in the olden days, we used to call that rededicating our lives to Christ. Somebody got saved, they ran off, lived like a moron, came back and answered an altar call and said, I'm rededicating my life to Christ. Well, all those moron years, you know, those were times when you were clearly a stranger or God was clearly a stranger to you, if nothing else, or you wouldn't have made those decisions. <laughs> but that's kind of where the, the guys are as they come out of Egypt and they meet God. Um, I, I tried to, to digest, I put a slide together for us just to give you some idea about where are we here in the world. Uh, if you go all the way up to the top right corner, you start getting into southern Israel. So just beyond the Dead Sea, a little bit farther north is Jerusalem. So here we are over in Egypt, not too far away, and, and you'll recognize some, you know, Saudi Arabia's in this part of the world. Uh, and just to get a feel for well, how's the flow of this book going to take place, I, I put these, I think I put this in your outline as well. If you were to divide maybe Exodus into some chapters here, and I'm going to stuck them on a map here, uh, you'd have the first sort of giant chapter of Exodus would be in Egypt. We're going to spend time in Egypt. And, you know, if you subtitle these, because this is a book about God. If it's a book about anything, the Bible is a book about God. And so to rescue us from being tempted to run down the road of children's Bible stories and, well, the Exodus, you know, it's, it's crossing the Red Sea, it's amazing miracles, it's, it's the Ten Commandments, you know. The Bible's a book about God more than anything else. Now, it's about other things, but it's a book about God. So when we start off in this land of Egypt, kind of chapter one there, uh, this God seems distant. We'll look at that more in detail probably next time. Uh, then you get into this section of deliverance, right? When we begin to exit out of Egypt, God's going to rescue his people out of Egypt, and God is the God who rescues and liberates. And then we'll have a short period where we're transitioning this journey of a few months from deliverance to Mount Sinai, where they're going to engage God. But there's a lot of transitional elements that we're going to learn some things about how to follow God, how to be led by God, the struggles of doing that. Uh, and this is where the God who leads is made known. And then we get to Mount Sinai, and there's a covenant connecting. There's a, a, a covenanting together, God with his people. And this, this is going to be where we learn about the God who relates to us. And then towards uh, the end of the book, but we're not going to change geography here. We're going to stay at Mount Sinai. We're going to receive some revelation on, on tabernacling. Right? That was a word that people used to use years ago. It's, you know, the Old Testament creation of the tabernacle. It was the dwelling place of God. So the God who dwells among his people, we're going to learn about that. But what's interesting, if you look at all these chapters, the tabernacling one might be the one that's, that's maybe the least understood one. Right? It's all this regulations and the creating of the tabernacle setting and all the stuff that went in and was going to be used in the temple service and the role of the priests, etc. All this stuff about tabernacling, but we know a lot about 
the Ten Commandments. We've heard of that. We, we know something about the rescue and the miracles. But the largest section of Scripture in Exodus is about tabernacling, which I think gives something away. I think it gets something that we need to be reminded of. What was God after in all these acts that he has done? What was God after in raising up a Moses to go into Egypt, <clears throat> into the lion's den, if you will, and rescue a people out of there? Well, what was God after when he sent one greater than Moses, Jesus Christ, into this world, into the teeth of Egypt to rescue a people out? What was he after? Now, listen, we can sing about and celebrate the cross and the resurrection, and we should, but, but they are a means to an end. The storyline doesn't stop with Jesus being crucified. Jesus being crucified is there to accomplish something. It is so that we might dwell with our God in eternity. It's tabernacling with him. And so it's a reason why God maybe saves the most information for emphasis in that category. A quick little square there that's in your outline. Sometimes we read the Bible, we think every page is progressing at the same pace, you know, so it's like one year and then another year and then another year or 100 years. Well, not the case in Scripture, and it's helpful to know that. Chapter 1 is going to cover about 430 years in what it describes. And then chapter 2 is going to cover about 80 years of Moses' life before he actually takes off on his assignment. And then the rest of the book is only going to cover about one year. So we're going we're gonna to slow down in time quite a bit as we move through this book. But let me raise this question. Here we are seated this morning, and we're going to study an ancient document, the story of the Exodus. And the question is, why, why study Exodus? Why is this available to us today? Right? I mean, what we're doing right now is you're opening up a very old story. It was written down a long, long time ago about events from a long, long, long time ago in a foreign place, right? So would it, would it be weird this morning if I were to say, hey, can uh, this morning uh, please open up the New York Times to uh, April the 3rd, 1958, and we're going to read from the front page this morning. Would you just think that's bizarre? You know, whatever was happening way back then with people long ago, who knows why we're even talking about them today, but we'll draw some historical lesson. Let's learn from history together or, or maybe pull out Thucydides from the 4th century B.C., the Peloponnesian Wars about Sparta and Athens, and, and we're going we're gonna to read from that this morning, and, we, and we'll just draw some kind of life lesson from that. Right? Why are we hanging out in an ancient story in the Old Testament and going to study it this morning, try and draw some thoughts from it. Well, you know, the Bible helps us to see that, right? In your outline there is a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And you don't have to turn here, but you can just look at that passage because it's interesting this particular passage is highlighting the book of Exodus. It says, now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so Corinthians clues us in. Why is this story in Exodus written down? And why should anybody read it and draw any thoughts from it? Well, the context there in 1 Corinthians 10 is this. The Apostle Paul, thousands of years later, saying, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, 
and all passed through the sea, right? This is the Red Sea, the miracles of God. And we're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. what, What event is this? Well, this is the Exodus event. And why is it written down? Well, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's written down for us upon whom the ends of the age have come. Well, what kind of insights is it trying to bring us? Well, the next verse in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Right? We, we know these verses. How does Paul make his point? How does he teach people who, in your context, in your life right now, You're going to walk out of this place. You woke up this morning. You were living last week, and you were facing temptations. And they were temptations for you to serve the urges that are in your own heart. They were temptations for you to give in to idolatry. They were temptations for you to to pull up some disgusting app. Sorry, Evan. And get lost in crazy ideas about life, things that are antagonistic to God, things that highlight some pleasure that you can have. And they were tempting to you. And you were drawn to that. And Paul says, hey, hey, can I help you if that's what you're dealing with? Can can I help you by taking you back to this story that God reserved for us all the way back in the book of Exodus? And he pulls that story up into your modern temptation and says, this is relevant to this. So this morning, I know it's kind of tempting to be listening to old stories in the Bible about people in deserts, you know, and there's just nothing. That doesn't have anything to do with us, does it? Well, this is what's unique about this book. This is not the New York Times. This is not even some historic document that was written down by people who observed some things happening. This is a a mysterious book here. The God of the universe selectively wrote down particular things and preserved them so that they would have an ongoing living impact for thousands and thousands of years. So this is not just, hey, this dude's going to try and take some historic story and make something out of it this morning. And this is God having preserved these particular words for us. This is relevant to you today. And, and so is other places in Scripture. I'm going to just run this through you real quickly here in your outline. Romans 4, verse 23. Speaking of Abraham, says, now for his, now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Why do we have this story about a man named Abraham, this tent-dwelling wanderer in the desert, he believed something about God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we have his story preserved. And it's written down, not just for him, it's written down for us so that you and I might understand the doctrine of justification. God was teaching us the doctrine of justification by interacting with a man named Abraham thousands of years ago and preserving that story so that you and I could come to understand what does it mean to be right with God? What do you have to do to be right with God? Well, Abraham's a living example. He didn't do anything except believe and receive what God had done and said on his behalf. Well, that's how you and I learn from Scripture. 
Right? Psalm 78 says, he, speaking of God, established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Right? Why did God preserve a testimony in Jacob, right? The story of Jacob's descendants. Why is this written down? Why do we have the Exodus story? Why did God appoint a law in Israel? Why did God do that so many thousand years ago? So that today, you and I could set our hope in God. This story mysteriously helps us to set our hope in God. And to not forget his works. Do you know how easy it is for you to believe that God's resume starts the day you were born? Genesis chapter 1 was February 26, 1964, as far as I'm concerned. So God's resume starts playing out at that point. Okay, well, that's not God's perspective. When you and I stand and we go, hey, God, where are you? Why aren't you showing up today? God, why aren't you doing some tricks in my life? God, where are the miracles that I need today? You know, God says, hey, have you forgotten who I was? Well, I don't know who you were way back then, but I, I just want to know who you are right here for me. Well, God says, well, I'm the same God, and it's your obligation to know who I was way back then because I was revealing myself to you and not just to them. So how many of us want God to rewrite a Bible for us personally? We have a crisis. We have a need. God, you need to show up in my life and, you know, you need to open the Red Sea for me right here, right now. Oh, maybe he will. He didn't do that for everybody. And maybe he won't do it for you, but he has done it. And it informs me about how I feel about this God. And God says, hey, I've written these things down so that you don't forget what I've done. And Man, this, this is a tough spot, isn't it? Because my moments of doubt, my moments of fear, my moments of insecurity, my moments of panic, all advertise, hey, Keith, you have forgotten what God has done in this world and in your life. Right, so these, that's why these things are written down. And then there's this strange little hanging element on the end there, but keep his commandments. Right, that's interesting. Let me give you a summary thought here. We have the Exodus story so that we might know and understand God Know and understand ourselves and our true needs. Know and understand the world in which we live. Know and understand our relationship with God and our responsibility to God. Right, you remember this, this little passage here that says that you would keep his commands. Most of us love the idea that I, this morning we could set something out from the scripture that rekindles the thought that there's a God who's out there who wants to benefit you. There's a God out there who loves you. There's a God out there who's taken notice of every day of your life. There's a God out there who's bottled up every one of your tears. These are all biblical, by the way. We love that idea. We don't necessarily love the idea that the God that we're speaking of could sit in the room with us this morning and remind us that he commanded us to live a certain way. But when God said, I've preserved all these stories for you, he didn't just say, I've preserved these stories for you so that you can have hope. Yeah, I did that. And then the end of sentence. 
so that you could have hope that you wouldn't forget what I've done and that you would obey me. Obedience to God is part of why we have these stories. It's part of why they're given to us, right? You remember Jesus gives the great command? He says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Listen, I know, and I'm a preacher, and I do this in settings, and it's appropriate to do this. It's just not the full story. When you stand and say, there's a God out there who loves you, and he wants to meet the needs that are in your life, that's absolutely true. And there's many times, be careful, because I know some of you are like, yeah, that's right, brother. Preach the whole gospel. All right, listen, can you read through the gospels and find places where the disciples and Jesus himself did, quote, preach the whole gospel? There are some people who meet mercy, and that's all they meet. It's all they meet. Just God being merciful in their lives. So it's not wrong to say that. But when you and I carry the Great Commission, the defining document, the Magna Carta of what we're doing here on this earth, it carries with it. Preach the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, that all you need to do is believe in it, and then teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's, that's the Great Commission is, is both. Right, so we're going to learn something in this book of Exodus about that. Paul Tripp, great quote, put it in your outline a little bigger last week, but a little shorter version. What are we looking at in this story today? He says, the Bible isn't an encyclopedia, it's a story. The great origin, the destiny story of redemption. Every portion of the Bible tells us things about God, about ourselves, about life in this present world, and about the nature of the human struggle and the divine solution. Every page. I don't know what you look for when you read the Bible. What are you looking for when you read the Bible? Are you looking for some Ann Landers piece of advice? Only the old people know who Ann Landers is. Uh, you know, what, what are you after when you're reading the Bible? Well, this is the stuff that God's tucked away in all the stories and pages. This stuff that's in Paul Tripp's quote right there. That's what we should be looking for when we come to the Bible. So we're going to open up to Exodus 1 here, and we're going to look at chapter 1 today. It's about 1875 B.C. Uh, Exodus is, is in a genre of historical narrative. So it, it is telling history and it is narrating it as a story. It's selective events. Uh, it's not a book about Egypt, right? Although Egypt's going to be in it. It's a book about God and the nation of Israel. So this is how God chooses to reveal himself through the nation of Israel. Egypt is, is a temporary player in the story here. But so they get, so we're going to learn some things quite a bit from them. So let's start in verse 1. These are the names. Now that's actually the name of the book originally. Right? So the, the term Exodus is not originally in uh, the original text. It is an imposed title based on the exit dimension that we find in the storyline. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. All right? if, you, if you were to just keep reading Genesis into Exodus, you would think that you didn't even stop one book and start another. 
right? I mean, and Genesis ends this way. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. These are the names of the sons of, right? This is just a continuation of the story, which is important if, if we're going to get the fact that this is the gospel according to Moses, some of us think the gospel began when the gospels began. Like, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they had, this, they had this unique angle on things. You know, they had this thought about Jesus that was totally new and revolutionary. It's called the gospel. Uh, no, no, the gospel is in the garden. The gospel is in the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So before anything materializes, the gospel is already in God. And it's just being revealed. And so when we get to Exodus here... We're just taking the next step in understanding the storyline of the gospel. So this is very much is the gospel according to Moses. But then in verse 8, we're, we're going we're gonna to create some focus in this story. Right? This story is going to focus on humanity. It's going to focus on the needs that are in our lives, in our experience. And what you notice here when we get to verse 8 is this quickly, this massive shift from what was once a pretty nice place, Egypt, right? You remember how we got into Egypt with our friends from Israel? They were about to starve to death in Canaan. There was a plague that had come across, you know, a famine that had come across the world, and they were going to starve to death like many, many people had starved to death. But God had sent Joseph ahead. Joseph had found favor in the government and in the eyes of the Egyptians. He was a hero to the people, and he had relatives who were all going to die. The people in Pharaoh, no, no, this can't happen. No, they are welcome here. You bring them all here. We'll set them up. We've got some condos up on the Mediterranean Sea. They can stay there. This is like, you know, post-Katrina. You guys remember this? And yet people come out of the woodwork saying, hey, I got a house here. I got this there. Y'all are welcome to stay as long as you want. You're, weren't you just blown away by people's kindness and care? I mean, just out of nowhere comes people, just their heart, and they're just willing to spend and give themselves, right? If I take a snapshot of humanity in this moment, I'm impressed. These Egyptians are some quality, stinking people. That Pharaoh, second to none. Unbelievable. And then, then Exodus chapter 1 doesn't waste much time in, aren't people nice category? It introduces us to the dark side of humanity. You don't go long before man's true colors begin to stick out, that inside of every smile is a potential mess waiting to happen, and that's what we get introduced to in the rest of the chapter. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, right? In Joseph's day, words like care and hospitality and sacrifice, kindness characterized these people in Egypt towards Joseph and the experience of God's people. Then verse 9, this new king said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, unless they multiply, and, and God forbid, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. 
Right, so all of a sudden, the welcome guests have fallen into a new paradigm of thinking. They don't feel like they're welcome guests. Now they're perceived as a threat. Now these people could turn on us. Now they could harm our way of life. They could take something from us. We could be in danger. Now listen, not that they've given any reason for that, but this is how they're beginning to feel. So now they're their heart is moved into different categories. Rather than somehow being motivated to be very generous and caring, now they've become fearful and insecure. They feel threatened. Self-preservation now is the number one factor. How do you deal with these people? Not generosity, self-preservation now. And even hostility. Verse 12 says, they were in dread of the sons of Israel. And, you know, when this begins to be the condition in your heart, and let me just put you in touch with this, right? This is a book really old, but this is real familiar to most of us. How many of us, you don't have to raise your hand on this, but, but we know what it is to have fear inside of us, like a caged animal, loud, demanding, pressing, freaking out, self-preservation, self-interest, Anger and hostility. We know something about these things on the inside of us. Listen, if you get those things bubbling up on the inside of you, they will manifest themselves on the outside of you. You will take actions. Now, it's one thing to be tempted in those areas. It's another thing to let those things off the leash and they live in you in a way. You will take actions based on those things and that's what these guys do. All right, in verse 11... They turn the Israelites from welcome guests into slaves. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses, right? These guys are going to build cities for us. That's what we're going to get them to do. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Right, when we get a little farther into the, the book, we're going to learn about the Passover meal and one of the Passover meals of remembrance was the bitter herbs that they would eat. It was a way of reminding them of their ancestors' bitter history. Right? This is a tough set of vocabulary words, right? You have taskmasters. You have them afflicting with hard labor. They are being compelled and forced to do things they don't want to do. Their lives have been made bitter. Ruthlessly, they have been made to work as slaves. Now, now you and I are so distant from this event that it doesn't reverberate to us. As a matter of fact, most historic enslavement doesn't reverberate to us. But colonial enslavement reverberates to us. We live in a culture where our ancestors, our country was involved in enslaving other human beings. This horrible, oppressive pick you up, rob you from the context of where you've lived your life and who you are, humiliate you, take away from you every form of personhood that exists and force you to exist for my existence. Right, we know something about that in this country, don't we? Because it's not too many years ago that it was here. 
240 plus years of colonial slavery dot our history in this country. Now, what's interesting, before, before any of you fall in love with, aren't, aren't people great? Oprah. Isn't everybody just great, just trying to figure out how to be greater again and better the next day than they were the day before? Aren't all people just nice people? I don't know. History doesn't play that out real well. You know, go back to a primitive people right here in 1875 B.C., enslaving other human beings, forcing them to give up on their personhood and exist for the sake of somebody else's purpose and betterment. 1875 B.C. You you know, hey, if man is evolving to a better place, somebody help me. Because you fast forward to 1865 A.D. in this country and you have what? The Civil War being fought over the issues that are 3,700 years old based on just this story. 3,700 years later, humanity still doesn't have a value system that respects other people's dignity. How many of you guys are foolish enough to think that 3,700 years from now, should the Lord tarry, that's going to get fixed? Okay, human history teaches some really, really ugly lessons, doesn't it? Well, it only gets worse, right? They enslave them, and then, remember, where did all this come from, right? Well, it came from insecurity. It came from being threatened. It came from those people are in the way of our good and our protection in the future, right? This is what's on the inside of them. So we'll enslave them, we'll make them serve our purpose, and we'll humiliate them and, and dehumanize them. And that didn't seem to work. They still thrived. So verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, right? Not just the midwives now. He commanded everybody. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast it into the Nile. You shall let every daughter live. Can you imagine, all right, can we just, these are human beings. This is a man looking at little baby boys and saying, just throw them in a river and walk away. And let them drown and let them die one after another. This is what's in the human heart. This is what people are capable of when you stand in their way, when they perceive you as a threat, when fear is the loudest sound going off in the inside of somebody's heart. Same people that welcome these folks. 
And what's amazing here, this should, this should terrify us. What's amazing here is it was all a figment of their imagination. Israel hadn't risen up against them. They were not a hostile group of people. They were not trying to overthrow the Egyptian government. They were not partnering with other nations to come against Egypt and bring them down. It was all up here. But what if they did? What if they did? They might. They could. We need to take actions. Right, that's, that's scary to me because that's too familiar to me. I do a lot of stupid things based on my imagination. How about you? I can spend a few minutes in the real world, and then I can walk away and spend hours in the imaginary world. And in the imaginary world, measures must be taken. You're having arguments and debates and everything short of killing the person that you're in a conflict with. And, and none of what you've imagined is real. It's just what you thought might could be real or might could happen or they could possibly respond that way or I could lose this or this is threatening me potentially in this way. And, and we do this stuff, don't we? We take ridiculous measures in response to our imaginary worlds. That's frightening. Right? We learn something here about ourselves, don't we, in Scripture. We learn something about Pharaoh, the big bad guy, but we learn something about ourselves. We learn something about the condition of evil in this world. This is a horribly evil setting, isn't it? Genocide and slavery. I don't know if you can make worse headlines exist. All right, now this, this rallies the question for us, whether we're a skeptic or we're just trying to figure out life in this world. Why? Is there so much evil in this world? Why? I mean, news headlines are not that different today. Why is there so much evil in this world? What's interesting, onto the scene of philosophers has come the loud and well-published individuals collectively known as the new atheists who are publishing their thoughts everywhere they possibly can. Let me just warn you. You do any kind of a Google search on Christian information, uh, more than likely the first dozen or so are highly populating the first responses that you get are going to be one antagonistic position after another. Right? So you're trying to find out something about the Bible, and you're going to find out all the reasons why you shouldn't believe in the Bible. You're trying to find out something about a view of God, you're going to find out all these reasons why there is no God. Now, you read 10 of those in a row, and you don't realize that all 10 of them are recycling somebody else's bad idea, so they kind of draw from one pool. But you don't realize that. You're hearing 10 different people all tell you God doesn't exist. Don't act as though that doesn't affect you. At some point, when you start scratching your head and you have real questions about life and why it doesn't work, some of those little ideas bore witness by so many people, oh, my goodness, is going to call out to you in a strange way. So you might want to be careful about how you ingest information in this world. The, the new atheists blame religion for all the evil that exists in the world, right? Uh, if you were in the class that Evan's doing on Sunday mornings, which I, I hope many of you, if you're not able to be here because uh, you are blind and can't remember how to drive to the church, um, <laughs> then that's available to you on podcast, and you can, you can download that and look at it. You need this information. 
you need to have this. This is a world that is teaching you how to live without God. At some point, you are going to wonder what's the purpose of God and does he really exist? Because these aren't amateurs. These guys are doing a pretty good job. Now, when you listen to them, they've got all kinds of holes in their thinking. But you're going to need to listen and analyze carefully, which most of us won't do because we're taught to read by Google. Right? The average person spends four seconds on a Google page. It comes up, you view it, and then you move to something else, and it comes up and you view it. Four seconds before you click to the next thing. Right? So it's kind of hard to get good information inside of us. But here's an interesting thing. Christopher Hitchens is one of the leading spokesmen for the atheist movement today. He's dead now. But uh, he wrote a book. Uh, I think it's called God is Not Great. I'm not sure. One of the sections of the book was Religion Poisons Everything. In an interview with a man named John Wiener, he says, you show in your book how many horrible things men have done because of religion in Belfast, Beirut, Bombay, Belgrade, and Baghdad. Men kill other men and say God told them to do it. But why blame God for the bad things that men do? Mr. Hitchens says, well, I don't blame God. I blame religion. I don't believe there is such a thing as God. Religion makes people do wicked things they wouldn't ordinarily do. Can you just hold on to that really bright comment for a second? It doesn't make them behave better. It makes them behave worse. And then he cites examples of religious Religious coded wars, whether it's Muslim-related, Christian-related, historic situations where people on different sides of religious views have fired shots at each other. Okay, travel the world over and encounter Christianity and all the cultures in which it's traveled and make this moron statement. It makes people behave worse. Well, then please explain to me why you go from one culture to another and the only orphanages there are Christian orphanages. And the few hospitals that exist that care for people have Saint Somebody stuck on their doorpost because Christians built that. Why they've stepped in in place after place to help reform laws that oppressed people and harmed people all over the world. Relief organizations that exist. The Red Cross. The Salvation Army. Do you recognize the words in those things? Now, the Red Cross today is, what are they? They're just like a humanitarian relief agency, right? Listen, their origins are the Red Cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. People motivated by the God of mercy to come and be merciful in people's lives. The Salvation Army that shows up still today was started by evangelists who were an army that were bringing salvation into broken people's lives. I'm sorry, Mr. Hitchens, this is a moron statement. If you travel around the world, you will find so much of the good that exists throughout communities have their origins in Christians who sought to affect their world. And this other statement, religion makes people do wicked things they wouldn't ordinarily do. Wow, that's really self-flattering, Mr. Hitchens. Uh, as far as I can see, people ordinarily do some really, really obnoxious stuff. 
and to sit around and say, well, religion caused them to do that. Oh, really? Okay. Exodus 1 doesn't reveal religion as the motivating force of man's evil, his intent to enslave and control others, but rather fear and self-interest and self-advancement and preservation and greed. That's the reason that we see genocide and enslavement in the book of Acts. This is not a religious crusade for Pharaoh. This was looking out for number one. And that's not too foreign to anybody, is it? Because every one of us have got a little bit of looking out for number one in our lives, right? Slave labor, what was the heart motivation for controlling, manipulating, and enslaving the Israelites? Well, it was self-advancement. We can use these people to further our interests. They can build for us cities that we need. We need labor. We need cheap labor. We don't have enough laborers. We need protection. We need protection from them. And we need protection from our enemies. So self-preservation. Racism. They're not of our race. Listen, every enslaving act throughout human history involves one group elevating its opinion of itself and devaluing an opinion of another group. Every act of enslavement involves that. And that's what these guys do here. They're not us. They're not Egyptians. So it's okay to treat them this way. This is not religion that taught these people to do this. Right? The genocide. Religion didn't motivate the killing of innocent babies. Deadly self-interest did. It's not a religious act. It was just pure, deadly self-interest. And that's not too foreign to the world that you and I live in. Since 1973, Roe versus Wade, where abortion became a legal procedure and acceptable in our culture, 57 million babies have been killed. 57 million in our very proper well-to-do society where we have a high opinion of ourselves and others. I don't need to qualify this statement much. There are rare situations of abortion where there's a medical need for that procedure, rare. Nearly all abortions are for Pharaoh-type reasons. I'm, I'm not ready to have this child. I don't know that I want to take on the responsibility for this child. I don't think I can have the life that I want to have if I take on this child right now. I wasn't ready for this. I'd like to do this instead of that. It's, it's self-preservation. It's, it's the advancement of my desires at the expense of someone else's life. This is not an easy subject to bring up in a culture where more than likely here today, someone here has been a part of an abortion personally, had an abortion. You were the boyfriend who didn't do anything to prevent that or because listen, listen in your own life was it because you didn't want to take on that responsibility either. That, that life was going to inconvenience your own life. I, I didn't want to do that. And so I made a decision here. This, this is what's inside the human heart. Now, the good news today is there's a God who comes seeking us who are in that condition. 
This is why there's, there's incredible good news. And no matter where you've been in this subject, there's a God who does want to come. And, and listen, you'll never get healed from that event unless the God who had the right and the authority over that life heals you. You will never get healed. You cannot forgive yourself for what you did. I'm not trying to make this harder for you. I'm trying to show you where the escape door is. The counsel that you get that says you just need to forgive yourself. Well, then that sounds like it's going to work. But the offense is against another. It's not against you alone. It's against another. So you can forgive yourself and never erase the sense of guilt that you have that that baby is gone. And that you took the life that belonged to God and you decided what you would do with it. You need the God of the universe to tell you you're forgiven. And that's what he does in Jesus Christ. So there's good news even for that. Right, the taking of innocent babies, the self-interest. You know, history is littered with these individuals, right? In our lifetime, for some of us here, Adolf Hitler. Was, this was not a religious event, Mr. Hitler. Right, one study by the University of Hawaii said, by genocide, the murder of hostages, reprisal raids, forced labor, euthanasia, starvation, exposure, medical experiments, and terror bombing, and in the concentration and death camps, the Nazis murdered from 15 to 31 million people. And those are numbers that are disputed that they could be twice as much. Now, here's what's interesting. If you want to understand why do people do this kind of stuff, right? Uh, WorldWar2History.com has an article entitled, Hitler Authorizes Killing of Disabled. Now, this is not a religious group here, but listen to what they say. Not surprisingly, given his core belief in the notion of the survival of the fittest. This is before anybody falls in love with evolutionary thinking. Evolutionary thinking carries with it a philosophy. Apart from the authority of God, evolutionary thinking says it's right for the fit ones to survive and for the weak ones not to. It makes a statement that's beneficial to the race for that to happen. And that is how Hitler felt. His interest was in a superior race. He was trying to weed out the weak, the, the dysfunctional, the ones who couldn't contribute to that, the one who slowed us up from getting to be the race that we want to be. That's what was motivating this man. Hitler embraced the ideas of conventional eugenics, but wanted to take them to an extreme level. In a propaganda film shown in 1937, the Nazi vision was made clear. Patients in mental asylums revealed as suffering in their own minds, whilst the commentary made clear the cost to the state of keeping these people in care. The implication was obvious. If these people did not exist, then the Nazi state would be much better off. Why the genocide through the Nazis. That's why. Because that's what's inside the human heart. What advances my self-interest, even if it ends your life? Joseph Stalin's regime was responsible for 40 to 60 million deaths. The International Business Times records, an amoral psychopath and paranoid with a gangster's mentality, Stalin eliminated anyone and everyone who was a threat to his power, including and especially former allies. He had absolutely no regard for the sanctity of human life. Pol Pot, 
communist leader of Cambodia. 1925, he lived to 1998. His communist Khmer Rouge movement led Cambodia from 1975 to 1979. You guys remember the killing fields? During that time, about 1.5 million Cambodians of a total population of 7 to 8 million died of starvation, execution, disease, or overwork. Some estimates place the death toll even higher. The the man killed 20% of the population of the people he was leading. You guys know how long I could go on telling these stories? Pharaoh's not the only Pharaoh-type character in the human race, is he? There's lots and lots and lots of them. Slavery, human trafficking, sex slaves, these aren't religious enterprises. They are people who are true to their own desires and feel no restriction of a higher moral restraint than their own appetite and benefit. Why is there so much evil in this world? Because people are selfish. Because people are selfish. Four little words to a very complicated scenario. And they will hurt you in order to advance their cause. And listen, you can wrap up some of that hurt in religious terminologies and people settings. This is not a religious event. Right? ISIS, all of its killing, all of its brutality in the Middle East, it's a Muslim group. Right? See, that's, a, that's a religion again. Right? That's that religion again. Listen, you... You can't ball ISIS up and stick it in that category and just walk away from it and say, look, see all the evil that comes from religion? You know, even the religious component is confused amongst a whole lot of other motivations in these people's lives. You, you got people over there who don't even understand what it is to be a Muslim participating in these groups. Can you explain the Muslim doctrine of gang raping women? That's what they're doing. Listen, because there's evil in the heart of everybody. Everybody's got a problem inside their hearts. Right? The, in the news last week, what is it? The, uh, the pizzeria place in Indiana who came out and said something about, you know, if a, if a same-sex marriage were to come to us and want us to serve pizza. This was kind of the going joke of the week. It's like I don't know how often uh, couples are going to a pizzeria to ask them to cater for their wedding. But um, if that were to happen, they said they would, you know, in good conscience not be able to do that. And so we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. Boy, it wasn't religious people that came up in arms over that. It was the LGBT community that came up and said, burn the place down, threaten their lives. Is that a religious thing inside of people's hearts? To, no, it was just you, you won't advance my cause. I'm filled with rage about that. So this is what's in the heart of people. So we pick up Exodus and we learn about this man named Pharaoh. We learn about conditions that went from pleasant to horrible like that. And we're left with 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. So there's this land called Egypt. It was a land that existed in 1875 BC, desert, northern Africa. It was a physical land. But when you and I pick up the scriptures, often the lands that are there, you know, the land of promise, it's much more than just a geographical concept. It is that in the Bible, but it's much more than that, isn't it? 
it's trying to communicate something to us. Uh, Jason referenced it, just how God gets us to think into the future and knowing that there's these promises from God. That, that's more the land that God's interested in. It's, all right, when I reach back to Egypt, yep, it's got some boundaries and borders. It's very dirty. They make bricks there. They build stuff. There's a pharaoh. He's dressed a certain way, etc. But there's a land called Egypt. There's a concept. There's an experience of life called Egypt that humanity needs to get saved out of. That's what the Bible's screaming at us. Because you and I don't have that kind of an Egypt, but we have our own Egypt, don't we? We live in a world that has Egypt-type qualities to it that will enslave and oppress and interact with our lives a certain way. And I want to say we live in a world and we're tempted to act just like Pharaoh and have the same motivations that he has. So let me, let me pull us into that crosshair before we spend some time praying together this morning. Question for you. How are you responding to your time in the land of Egypt? Your time, right? First, are we shocked and puzzled that people could behave like this? I know we are because I hear it in conversations. I hear it in counseling. I hear it when people come in and they've bumped into the sinfulness of humanity and they're shocked. I try to hold back. If you come to my office and I, and I just act like you've grown two heads, um, it's because I feel like you've grown two heads. It's like, well, you didn't read very far into the Bible, did you? You didn't get past the first couple of letters in the Bible? Uh, this surprises you that you find in the human heart betrayal, harm, selfishness, pride, destructive measures, lying about, they lied about, I can't believe they lied about me. Really? You can't believe that? <laughs> Why don't you be shocked that they didn't do more than that? I mean, given what the Bible shows us about the condition of the human heart. So this is, you know, how many of us as Christians, we're called into the world to have an impact. We're bringing light into darkness. And then when we encounter darkness, we go, oh my gosh, it's dark out there. <laughs> oh, like, like no one told you that? <laughs> yes, it's a fallen world. Really, really fallen, fallen, fallen. So, listen, when we encounter this, let's not be too shocked, okay? When you go home today and you walk into your own home and, and it feels like people are behaving like Egyptians, please don't be so shocked. Like, yeah, but I gave birth to you. You ought to be towing the line. You know, I don't know where your gene pool's not Egyptian, buddy. Oh, no, no, yes, it is. Yeah, it is. You don't get too far out of the Garden of Eden before somebody's killing somebody, right? And they're related. <laughs> right? They're family members. Small family, too. I mean, I can understand if some of my kids killed each other. There's a lot of them. We probably wouldn't notice for days. But uh, if you just got, like, a couple of kids and one killed the other one, it's like, you know, can't y'all get along? You don't have a lot of people to go hang out with. It's just you guys. <laughs> but this is what's in the human heart. So am I surprised by this? You know, the Bible's highlighting Egypt-like qualities for us upon whom the end of the age has come. Are we paralyzed by the past Egyptians in our own lives? I find, I'm going to unpack this later, so I'll just install this as a thought. I find it very interesting that these people were under bitter, harsh, horrible conditions for, the Bible says, over 400 years. What a resume. What mistreatment. What, 
installment of experiences and, and thoughts leading to dysfunction in their lives. I mean, can you be real for a second? These are human beings under these kinds of conditions that are going to try and go on and live life. I would think that, given the way in which we approach things, the number one priority, as soon as Moses can get them out of earshot of Egypt, is, is I don't know, a 12-step program. Some kind of counseling, for goodness sake. Right? And I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, not to ignore the fact that these people were beat up on the inside without question. They had been abused. There's, there's no rally cause. Let's go back to the steps of the Egyptians. Let's go, the injustice. We need to pick it. Where does Exodus take us? Where does somebody coming out of those kind of conditions, where do they need to go? Straight to Sinai where you can be in relationship with the living God and learn to have him dwell among you. That's the agenda of your life. You have horrible stuff that needs to be fixed without a doubt, but the Bible doesn't point backwards in people's lives. It points forward. Do you know how much counseling is about going backwards for most people? We live in a victimization world. Everybody's been done wrong by somebody else. And therefore, I can't possibly have the life that I'm supposed to have. Okay, that thought is everywhere. It's everywhere. And it will begin to inform you about how do you fix yourself? Well, first, first, those people who did me wrong are going to need to address some of the things that they did wrong. You know, there's nothing in the Bible about Israel going forward only after Egypt repents of what it did to them. Isn't that good news? Because guess what? Egypt's not going to repent. Some of the most miserable news in this room right now is that there's too many of you waiting to get into freedom because you're waiting for people to do the right thing. You don't need them to do the right thing. You don't need your husband, your wife, your children, your relatives, your boss. You don't need them to do the right thing. You need God. That's what you need. He's a rescuer. He's a deliverer. He wants to be in relationship with you. That's why your life doesn't work. Stop standing somewhere between Egypt and Mount Sinai and going, you know, I just got a lot of thoughts. You know, I was raised this way. I was treated this way. The Egyptians in my life, my mom and dad, my relatives, my this, my that. Listen, turn your back on Egypt and run toward God. And watch what God does in healing the brokenness that exists in your life. It's incredible good news. It's the gospel according to Moses. Now, here's a little uncomfortable thought, right? Are you aware that you are made of the same stuff that this Pharaoh was made of? Pharaoh's a bad dude, isn't he? You can't possibly be like him. The Egyptians can't possibly be like them. Well, they were insecure. They felt threatened. They were fearful. They were self-preserving. They were self-advancing. There was their own self-interest. Sound like you now? Ever? Ever? We are not beyond introducing some type of enslavement to the people that are in our lives. If we feel threatened or think that our personal best interest is not going to be served by other people, we will be tempted to control them, to manipulate them, and to even enslave them. And you're not going to do it the way Pharaoh did it. 
but you'll do it. And you'll start doing it early in life, right? You'll start doing it when you're a toddler. How many of you guys got toddlers? Let me see your hands. Did you guys know that the word toddler is from the Latin word meaning manipulative terrorist? Did you know that? <laughs> yep, that's, that's where it comes from. All right, you start dealing with toddlers, you're going to think ISIS. <laughs> I got a toddler in my house, okay? They're whining grenade launchers and they're tantrum car bombs. Uh, you know, what are they doing in that moment? They are seeking to enslave you to their will. They want what they want, when they want it, the way they want it, and you don't seem to be cooperating. So they're just going to turn the heat up. They can whine longer than, oh, can you imagine? Just nag and nag. And if you don't give them what they want, they'll just up it, and you know it. And you're in a store, and you don't want to see them throw themselves on the floor and scream like bloody murder. So what do you do? You negotiate with the little terrorist. Here. <laughs> Here you can have this. Because they know. They got you. They're so much smarter. They know where they are. They got like a radar. They know. I'm in a store. See, this is, this is not a good setting for mom. <laughs> I got the upper hand now. <laughs> Teenagers. Teenagers live enslaving other people. Social media has become a, a bullying, enslaving device in people's lives. I'll just go public with this. I'll just say what you said. I'll post this. I'll take that picture that you sent me that you thought nobody else was going to see. And I'll, you, what, what are you doing with all that? I'm seeking to control you in my life. Seeking to force you to do what I want you to do. Include me, respect me, whatever, but it's my cause at your expense. Right? Teenagers, teenagers are pretty good at enslaving their parents. Their parents become cheap labor, you know? <laughs> Drive me here, take me there, buy this, do this for me, arrange your schedule. Right? It's just, it's just cheap labor, Right? Like, hey, you're the parents. You're supposed to do this. And, and, and then if you can't get them to do it, that's when you, you take measures against them. You just kind of begin to withdraw your affections, you know, get mopey. You know, that's, that's a, it's an effective form of manipulation. But, you know, you live with a teenager who just can't seem to stop dragging his face on the floor. It becomes motivated. It's like, I'll do anything. What do you want? What do you want? You want to own the car and the house here. Just, just stop terrorizing me with your pouting. Right? That, what is that? It's manipulation. Right? You're a teenager here today. You are tempted to manipulate the people in your life. And, and parents, listen, we're not innocent in this. Parents got a lot more years experience. We know how to do it and cover our tracks better. Right? So, you know, you can turn Pharaoh on your kids in a moment. I mean, and, and you use these shackles of guilt trips. There's all kinds of techniques that we've got as parents. You know, well, you know, your dead father just always wanted you to be a doctor. <laughs> but, you know, you want to work on cars? Go work on cars. You know, what is that? What is that, right? It's the shackles of manipulation. I'm seeking to control your life. Parents, you want to really take your temperature here and see how much Pharaoh-like you are? Let your kids, who you have spent all kinds of energy on making them look proper, presentable, respectful, let them just do something to you in public that just totally tells this story. I'm being raised by animals. 
You know, no one pays attention to me. I curse and I do stuff. Let your kid just do something that's kind of like, oh my gosh, we've never taught him to do that in that moment. And you blow up and you freak out. Why? You're making me look bad. It's not so much that what they did was all that horrible. It made you look bad. And now you are like Pharaoh. You're going to wield the shackles over their lives and enslave those little suckers. Right, husbands and wives. There's a lot of slavery going on in husbands and wives, right? Husband and wife doesn't do what spouse wants to have done, so we lowered the thermostat and install a little chill. <laughs> Let's see how you deal with the ice, ice, baby. <laughs> Days go by. What, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm trying to just work through this biblically. <laughs> really? No, you're not. No, you're just trying to get the dude to cry uncle, right? Withdraw affections, withdraw intimacy. Like we haven't been around each other in oh, I don't even know when, how long. Well, what's that all about? I ain't getting near that dude. That's manipulation. You, you are a pharaoh. You enslave other people for the sake of your own cause. Isn't that interesting? This is, this is what's inside of us. So before we think Pharaoh's a really bad dude, we might want to consider ourselves. Eric, you can go ahead and come back up. We may not be forcing people to make bricks and build cities in the desert, but we are definitely infected with the same motivations that seek to enslave people so that they will build something for us. may not be called Ramses and Python, but I want the people in my life to, to build something for me. Whether I use guilt, intimidation, whatever I got to use, I want to get the people in my life to do what I want them to do, even if it's at their expense, but it's for my benefit. This is inside of us. We're not too different from Pharaoh. So here's, here's good news. Here's the gospel according to Moses. And we're going to get to experience this in the coming weeks. God is a deliverer. That's who God is. God is a deliverer. And I I don't want to take this into your world for a moment. I want us to pray together. And I I want you to make room for the Holy Spirit to take this off the page and engage you in just a moment, right? So you you may be in one of these two categories, right? We've encountered two descriptions here. We've got... God who needs to deliver some of us from being under the control of the Egyptians, right? There are things in your life controlling you. You are enslaved to some things, just like Israel was. The good news is that God is a deliverer. God will enter your Egypt and he will set you free. He will lead you out of that enslavement. So just begin to let the Holy Spirit tap on you and say, is is that where you're at this morning? Is that who you are this morning? Or maybe you're in the other category here. God needs to deliver some of us from being evil, enslaving, self-interested, controlling Egyptians ourselves. We're that way with people manipulating, controlling, pressuring. Hey, the good news for those of us in that category is God is a delivering God. 
God can set Pharaoh as free as he can set the Israelites. That's the good news, isn't it? Now, can you, can you open your heart just for a moment? Can you not be so busy here that let me just run out of here and let me just go on with my week? Because if you've been living in Egypt, the stories we're going to see it unfold here, it's a miserable setting. It's a setting where people are crying out and they're crying out and they're crying out year after year after year. It doesn't seem like there's any relief coming. And they're living under the control of something else in their life. What if God this morning wants to step into your Egypt and deliver you out of it? What if that's what God wants to do right now? You ready to follow him? You ready to pack your bags and leave Egypt forever? Let's stand up together. Just make some room. Just, I want you to listen. I want you to listen for the Spirit of God. I want you to invite God to speak to you. Just tell him in your own heart, Lord, Lord, I'm here. I want you to speak to me. Maybe this morning finds you under the control, the, the dominance of something in your life. be classic controlling issues like drugs or alcohol. I feel like you can't escape, just keep going back to that. It dominates who you are and who you've been able to be in life. Maybe yours is more of a people issue. Maybe you're enslaved to other people's approval and fitting in. It just, it just turns you inside out. You have just lived in the land of Egypt, not 400 years, but a long time. So affected by what people think or don't think of you. You struggle, you labor underneath this. So if you're here this morning and you'd say, I I don't like the way my life feels. I don't feel free in God. I feel pressured and controlled. Is that how you feel? This morning, for whatever reason, you're here this morning feeling the freedom for which Christ has given his life to undo these shackles, the past. Or are you here this morning saying, I don't, I don't feel that. I, I feel pressured. I feel controlled by things in my life. I don't like the way my life feels. Listen, the people in Egypt began to cry out. The Israelites began to cry out. God said, I have heard the cries of my people, and I have come to rescue them. Have you, are you crying out this morning? Are you in a condition that you're saying, God, would you come and liberate me from this? Would you come deliver me from this? God, would you come set me free from this? Just, just I want you to bow your heads. I want you looking around. Bow your heads. I want you to identify whether you've got a this in your life that you need to be liberated from. I don't want anybody looking around. So just be honest before God, but help me to see where you're at. Just lift your hand and you'd say, yes, I have a this that I need to be liberated from. Thank you. A lot of hands. A lot of hands. 
you guys know where this book goes. This book goes into the story of God who rescues and liberates. He puts Egypt in the rearview mirror. Are you looking for God to do that? Or have you just begun to accept that Egypt is my permanent address? I'm going to just be this way for the rest of my life. It's never going to be different. Life's never going to feel different. Oh, this morning, can you just crack the door and let some cool, fresh air flow into this jail cell that says there's a way out. There's a God who rescues and delivers. And it can be the darkest, hardest, most non-ending situation that it can feel like. And this God still delivers. That's why he wrote this story down and preserved it for us. This is who God is. This is what God does. Can you just begin to pray and ask God? Say, Lord, I, I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief this morning. Lord, I'm so convinced that the days of the past are going to continue to be the days of the future. I'm, I'm so convinced of that. But God, this morning, I want it to be different. God, I, I want to cry out to you this morning. God, come and deliver me. God, come and liberate me. God, come and bring a new day into my life where I'm not controlled by these things. I'm not under the weight of these things. God, I pray you'd move through this room right now. Lord, I thank you that you are present when we gather. I thank you for the closeness of your spirit. Lord, I thank you that some came this morning, God, ready to move on. Lord, they're ready to move on. God, they've already got luggage ready to go. And I pray, start this work, Lord, as we interact with you today. Lord, as your word is unfolded in Exodus, God, would you liberate people through this study, to bring us into freedom. Spirit of God, would you find hearts right now, Lord, how sad it is that week in and week out, some walk in with a permanent address in Egypt with no plans to live elsewhere. Well, God, could you, to, this morning, could you serve notice to people? You no longer want them living in Egypt. It's time to go, time to go. God has come to liberate you. God, I pray right now that you would impart faith into hearts. Lord, we're not here by accident. This is not an accidental morning. This is a morning that you created. These are thoughts you ordained. This is an encounter you prescribed for us. So, Lord, would you give faith into our hearts, Lord, to begin to move with you, God, to begin to be in agreement with you, God, we know the rest of the story here, so this is not an easy moment because there's going to have to be 10 plagues and fireworks and miraculous events. There's going to be unbelief and battles in human hearts to make this stuff occur. So God, thank you for informing us about what's ahead, but God, thank you for featuring to us you are still the God who liberates his people. That's where we want to go, God, this morning. Fill our hearts. As we honor you and we sing this last song, Lord, would you move in our hearts with faith to move with you out of Egypt and into days of freedom. In Jesus' name.
why this fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for us? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin now canceled at the cross? Jesus, all my trust. Jesus, all my trust is in your blood. Jesus, you've rescued us. You've rescued us through your great Atonement you have made, and by your death have fully paid the debt your people owe. No wrath remains for us to face, it's paid for. We're sheltered by your saving grace and sprinkled with your died for me how sweet the sound of saving grace how sweet the sound of saving grace Christ died for me be still my soul and know this peace of your great high priest have bought your liberty. Rely then on his precious blood. Don't fear your banishment from God. Since Jesus sets you free, Jesus. Christ died for me. Sweet the sound of saving grace. Sweet the sound of saving grace. Christ died for me.
forgiveness has been purchased. Lord, redemption has been fulfilled. Lord, you have saved us, God, from our slavery to sin. God, we have been delivered on this side of the cross. Lord, would you help us not to, not to walk as though we are still in slavery, Lord, but walk in this freedom to see you as the God who has saved us, who has rescued us. Lord, would we trust in the blood of Jesus, not in our own efforts, we pray, God. Thank you for this word. We love you, God. Help us to live for you this week, we pray. In your name, amen.